Good morning, everybody. How are we? So here's uh, one of the things that I have learned uh, after a year of uh, kind of learning how to wear masks is as you're speaking, it's very, very hard to know if people are tracking with you because I can't see if you're smiling or frowning as I'm speaking. So you're going to have to do a good job of smiling with your eyes, as it were, when you see uh, or hear something so that I know that you're engaged. And that way we can know that we're uh, kind of tracking along with how I am speaking this morning. We're glad that you're here. We're uh, a week out from Easter, so we are in a very exciting time right now. This is the beginning of what's called Holy Week. And for the last five weeks since Ash Wednesday, our Christian brothers and sisters from around the world have been quietly and persistently preparing our hearts for what's to come. And this week really becomes the culmination of this season as we journey along with Jesus as he moves towards the cross and ultimately toward Resurrection Sunday, which we will celebrate here next week. Um, one quick encouragement that as our Lenten season is coming to a close, I would encourage you to take the time necessary in these final few days to further prepare for the remembrance and the celebration of both the cross and the resurrection. Life gets busy. Life gets fractured very, very easily. So if you can carve out some little moments over the course of the week just to be here, be present, be in the moment, and prepare your heart for this grand celebration that we get to celebrate together next week, uh, I would encourage you to do that so that we can walk in here next Sunday and we can truly experience the resurrected Lord together. So our scripture today, Matthew 21, 1 through 17, which we just heard read for us, it's the well-known story of the triumphal entry. It's the story of Jesus making his way into the city of Jerusalem for the final week of his earthly life. Now, our staff for the last five to six years has jokingly talked about this Sunday as the Sunday that nobody really wants to give the message, mainly because Palm Sunday is always the story of the triumphal entry. There's just no getting around it. So every single year on this Sunday, we preach essentially the same story with the same types of themes, the same types of ideas. And as a speaker, as a communicator, this can become somewhat monotonous when you get up here and you give the same message that you did a few years previous. And in fact, I've given this message a number of times. You'll probably remember such hits as, was it really that triumphal from 2012? Who was here in 2012? Raise your hand. Seven of us, you, I'm sure you remember that message I gave. Uh, 2015, I gave the king that we didn't know we needed. Anybody remember that one? Nobody. Cool. Okay. <clears throat> and then uh, 2017, it actually might have been 2016, because 2017, we were in this building but uh, I gave a message called, What Are the Palms Really About? Again, yeah, thank you. Thank you, up there on the top, man. Those are my fans up there. Uh, so, I, I mean, I've given this message a number of times. Russ has given this message, and our staff kind of goes back and forth like, oh man, Palm Sunday, who wants it this year? So tired of talking about this stuff, right? But... Even though each of these was slightly different, slightly nuanced in some unique ways, 
Each of these message was an attempt to contrast the humble way that Jesus comes into the city with the warring way of the kings of conquest. And although I might be tired of preaching a similar message year after year, I do believe it's critically important that we see this section of Scripture in Matthew 21 and in the parallel sections in the other Gospels because it does give us perhaps the best picture of the difference between empire and kingdom. And it's really, really important that we understand that. David Turner captures this contrast when he says this, the scene played out here is familiar. A conquering king parades gloriously into a city, yet much is strange about this triumphal entry. The king is clothed plainly, not in military or royal splendor. He rides a young donkey, not a war horse. He is meek, not bellicose. This combination of the trappings of power and glory with the imagery of humility send mixed signals that perplex all of Jerusalem. His triumphal entry, therefore, epitomizes the upside-down values of the kingdom. His model of greatness reverses the world's paradigm of powerful rule to humble service. So not only was this scene perplexing to those who were witnessing, but Jesus' entry to Jerusalem was truly a mockery of the Roman Empire and its history of military coronations. It was an indictment to the established political system and Jewish cultural desire for a warring Messiah. And if this wasn't enough riding into Jerusalem in this way, if this wasn't enough to rattle the power structures, Jesus then goes a step further in the next five verses as he enters the temple and begins to drive out those who were selling animals for sacrifice and the money changers needed to secure those sacrifices, making reference that his temple, his house, had become a den of robbers rather than its intention as a place of prayer and worship. Now, when we look just at this scene, these five verses, I think it's really easy to get this picture of Jesus in a fit of rage, throwing things around the temple like an out-of-control madman, like somebody who just simply had too much and absolutely loses it in that moment. But I would argue that his actions in the temple were not erratic, nor were they unplanned, but rather a calculated movement intended to show that his coming kingdom is not just about a few tables in that moment, but that rather it's in fact about overturning an entire economic system of oppression and dismantling the commodification of religion. It was far more than just a guy who loses control. This scene exposes the unjust systems burdening the people of faith. And like we have done since the dawn of time, what was good and right had been perverted to consolidate power and wealth for a few. These few hours in Jesus' life are revolutionary. It's Jesus' creative way to uncover the prominence of violence and systematic oppression in both the political and religious systems of the day, to expose them for what they really are, to bring evil into the light. 
And in reality, I think what happens when we truly look at this passage is we see or we begin to understand that these systems, the principalities that Jesus exposes 2,000 years ago are still very much present in our world right now. Certainly they are modernized, and unfortunately they have been normalized. And too often we use a veiled language that helps us all sleep at night with words such as advancement and freedom and rights and security and fairness, but they still work to consolidate power and wealth for a few. They still employ violence as a means of domination. They still oppress the poor, the stranger, the marginalized. And just as they were 2,000 years ago, they are still diametrically opposed to the kingdom of God. And so this is why, even though we discuss this same story every year, Jesus' triumphal entry is a critical passage for us to wrestle with how it should shape our lives as followers. For let us remember that 2 Corinthians 5 entrusts the ministry of reconciliation to all disciples, that as ambassadors we would continue the work of reconciling the world to Christ and restore things to their original intention. Because if we claim to be citizens of the kingdom of God before we claim to be citizens of a nation or an empire, then we have to continue to expose these systems for what they really are, and we have to keep up the work of ushering the kingdom of God into further existence. This is the very work of reconciliation. But this work is difficult. I can remember my first venture into exposing what I thought was an unjust system. It was almost two decades ago. Now, I do want to throw out this caveat. As an upper-middle-class, white, 20-year-old, cisgendered male enrolled in a liberal arts college, I had not had much experience with injustice. So I was incredibly caught off guard when Washington State implemented traffic cameras at intersections without telling me. One day coming home from a high school where I led Young Life, coming back to my, uh, uh, let's see, this is my sophomore year, so I lived in an apartment with a a group of guys. Coming back home, my car was caught on tape apparently running a red light. So when I received a ticket two weeks later, Via the Postal Service, I was shocked and appalled at this presumption of guilt without due process. So I resolved in that moment to take a stand and to fight for what I thought was right. I planned to contest my ticket in traffic court, and so the smart thing to do would be to secure representation, right? So I asked my then roommate, who was certainly the smartest in our house, Ross Carper, if he would legally represent me in traffic court. Our next step was to purchase a couple of three-piece suits from Value Village so that we looked the part. We showed up to court with a couple of fresh haircuts, ready to plead the the case. The judge calls my name, and I confidently stood and introduced my counsel, Ross Carper. Ross was a philosophy major. He's since gone and received a master's in creative writing 
He's incredibly skilled at speaking and writing, and so obviously he had written a brief for, this, for my uh, case, and he stands up, begins with what could only be described as a very dramatic clearing of the throat. <clears> throat> he says, Your Honor, ladies and gentlemen of the court, I stand here today to plead the innocence of my client, Kevin Longmire. And at this point, the judge interrupts Ross mid-statement, and he says, Mr. Longmire, are you serious? This court is not to be made a mockery of. Unless you have a serious reason to be here, I suggest both you and Mr. Carper leave this courtroom, settle your ticket at the window, and quit wasting my time. Ross and I quickly glance at each other and realize that the judge makes a very, very good point in that moment. And so we grab our newly purchased yellow legal pads of paper, and we walked directly out of the courtroom, and I paid my ticket in full at the window on my way out. That was your tax dollars at work right there, everybody, huh? Now... That's actually a real story, by the way. I did not make that up. We did that. I say this, or I tell this story to ask the question, did I really want to expose evil or injustice in that moment? Did I really feel like there had been some significant injustice placed upon me? Absolutely not. I was just a 20-year-old idiot in that moment. I was frustrated, I was angry, and I wanted to fight something. I also wanted to be spectacular in a moment. There was this need of, whoa, what if I could do this? What if I could stand in court and we could uh, kind of jokingly make our way through this and get this ticket thrown out? I wanted to prove I was right. The entire thing was about me in that moment. You see, intrinsically, as human beings, I think we want to be right. And we want others to agree with our rightness. At our very core, I think humanity desires vindication for our thoughts, for our actions. And this was all that I cared about in that moment. And so I ended up making a fool of myself in that courtroom because of my pride and because of my arrogance. It truly had nothing to do with working for the good. It truly had nothing to do with exposing some kind of evil or injustice. As we follow Jesus into the action of subversely exposing and dismantling unjust systems and principalities, I think we need to be very careful that we don't end up like Ross and I did in that courtroom, seeking our own rightness, led only by our own motives. I think it's important that we don't allow our anger or our hurt to create idols out of the issues that we're passionate about. I think it's critically important that we don't employ the same tools of change that the world would use or that the world values. You see, there are any number of issues, causes, and movements in our modern world that are important and need the full 
resources of the Christian church. In fact, we prompted you earlier, right, to think about some of those. Maybe some of you wrote a few of those things down, the things that you're passionate about, the things that break your heart, the things that make you angry. And I would guess that many, if not all of those things, are incredibly good things. They are issues, they are causes, they are movements that are important. And frankly, they're probably things that Jesus would be about as well. But the danger is when our own pride or the influence of some sort of mob mentality or our unbelievable access to information creates this kind of Christian wokeness that easily can become disconnected from the values of the kingdom. Now, the extreme examples of this are fanaticism or or violent protests or eco-terrorism, things like that, but that's not really our story in here. I think for most of us, the real danger is when you find yourself using the more subtle tactics of the world when you try to expose injustice or when you try to advance the issues you're passionate about, tactics like gaslighting or dismissiveness for those that don't feel the same as you do. Tactics like slander or disgust or disrespect for those who might think differently. Tactics like superiority or belittlement or exclusion for those that hold a different opinion. Tactics like vitriol or hatred or violence toward the people that represent the other side. You see, none of these things align with the kingdom of God. And so this might be sobering right now, but take a minute and look at your list or think back to those things, those issues that you said, I am passionate about this, and truly ask yourself, have you used any of these types of tactics when thinking about or discussing those issues, those injustices with someone that represents the other side? And if the answer is yes, then you might have to question your posture toward the injustice that you hold to be true in your life. You might have to ask yourself, has it become an idol? Has your desire to expose and make right an injustice become an idol in your life? Has it become more important to to you than the continued reign of the kingdom of God? You see, the following few chapters from our story in Matthew 21 are filled with a series of warnings from Jesus. He warns the people about the coming destruction of Jerusalem. He warns the disciples about the ease of missing the kingdom and the need for disciples to align their heart with God's. And he warns the religious elite about how they've used their faith to seek status and power in the same way that the world does. And then right in the heart of all of these warnings comes Matthew 22, 35 through 40. And it says this, you shall love your Lord, your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. You see, I believe we should follow in the way of Jesus' triumphal entry by using the only ammunition he gives, which is love. 
Jesus was revolutionary. He came to inaugurate a new way of life, a way we often refer to as the upside-down way because it turns on its head the practices and understandings and values of the world, and we are invited into this revolutionary way of living, which means we should stand with the marginalized. We should march on behalf of the oppressed. We should be a voice for the voiceless. It means that appropriate political and cultural dissent is needed, but we should do none of these things in the same pattern as the world. For if any of these things are not born out of and worked out of kingdom-centered love, then we have missed the message of Jesus Christ. In a world that is frantic to get behind the next important cause, I think we need to pause and evaluate. Amongst the many issues that should concern us, are we spending too much of our time arming ourselves with strength and knowledge and conviction and hostility and authority and right theology, when in reality the only weapon we consistently see Jesus tell us to use is the weapon of love? This is the great subversive tool that we have been given. Paul talks about the way of love in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 7. Many of us have heard this. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. What if we were to read these three verses this way? If I fight for what I believe is good and right, but have not love, I'm fighting like the rest of the world. If I can fill myself with knowledge and expose serious injustice and can mobilize others, and if I work so hard to make change but have not love, I am nothing. And if I change my personal actions and give everything I have and judge those who do not but have not love, I gain nothing. It's easy to pass off this verse from Corinthians as the verse that should be read at a wedding, but I wonder if Paul is really trying to describe just how subversive love can be. He continues to say this, love is patient and kind, love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. It is our duty to love the victim, but it is also our call to love the perpetrator. It's our duty to love the forgotten and neglected, but it's our call to love those who have intentionally overlooked and neglected. We need to love the oppressed, but it's also our call to love the oppressor. That's what's modeled on the cross, and that is the true subversive reality of love. And only through love will real change ever Occur. 
Jesus doesn't ask us to fight. In the same way he tells Peter to put away the sword in the garden, he calls us to put away the aggressive tactics of the world, and he invites us to march not with sword and force, but rather with world-changing love. Brian McLaren describes this kind of love as a revolutionary love, and he says this, by revolutionary love, I mean love beyond, love that goes beyond myself to my neighbor, beyond my neighbor to the stranger, alien, other, outcast, and outsider, beyond the outsider to the critic, antagonist, opponent, and enemy, and even beyond the human to my non-human fellow creatures. In short, revolutionary love means loving as God would love, infinitely, graciously, extravagantly. Make no mistake about it, love is the greatest subversive tool for change that we, as followers of Jesus Christ, have been given. Jesus rides into Jerusalem, and after his clearing of the temple is finished, we now have this story that we've been reading for 2,000 years. And the revolutionary nature of this story has echoed throughout time. And maybe it is more important for us to understand this now than ever. Because we live in a world where oppressive systems and dominating structures and wanton violence are becoming more and more consuming every day. We live in a time where disciples are needed to expose these things and work to make them right. But we cannot we cannot lose our focus on the kingdom and we cannot exchange our posture of love for the destructive actions of the world. So right now, we're going to take just a moment. I want you to think back, look back if you wrote them down, at those issues, those injustices that you identified when Russ was up here. We're actually going to play just a little bit of music in the background. And there's a few questions up here. Questions are this. How might a posture of love bring about reconciliation somewhere in your life? Or what are loving actions that you could employ towards someone that represents the other side of this issue? We'll leave these up here for a moment and then we'll advance to the next slide, which lists all of those descriptors of love that Paul gives us. And the question that we want you to wrestle with is how might loving in these ways create change in the world around? So just take a moment right now and let's think about this.
my encouragement to you this week. Spend a little bit of time, like I encouraged you in the beginning, take those few moments throughout the week to prepare yourself, and maybe this is the way that you prepare yourself as we move towards Easter. Russ talked about this idea of imaginative prayer last week, so what if we spent some time in imaginative prayer this week asking God to creatively equip us to love the world towards change? Let me close with this. I believe we must recognize that our citizenry in the kingdom of God will be evidenced by our love for each other, but maybe more subversively by our love for the opponent, the antagonist, and the enemy. The exposure and dismantling of evil started on this Sunday over 2,000 years ago was accomplished most profoundly one week later through the forgiving love of our King who died on the cross. And as we seek to continue the good work handed down to us, may we follow in the pattern of our Lord by using the greatest tool for change available, subversive and revolutionary love. Amen.